Welcome to CX Champions, an unscripted masterclass on how you can stand out, think differently, and reimagine what a customer experience could look like in a digital first world. I'm your host, Larry Fleischman. This podcast is brought to you by HGS. HGS is a digital customer experience leader dedicated to delivering winning customer interactions at scale that are prompt, personal, and positive. We continuously transform, optimize, and grow enterprises to exceed ever-rising customer expectations. HGS provides our clients with the right talent and technologies needed to champion every moment. Learn more at hgs.cx. Winston Churchill once said, to improve is to change, to be perfect is to change often. For a business, change encourages innovation. Most companies go through lots of changes throughout their existence. Change is essential to their growth. But for people, the truth is, change can be really taxing. Because let's face it, most people, they just don't like change. The process isn't easy. You've got to accept things that aren't in your control. And it's usually a response to something else that's happening. Something that didn't quite work out as planned. However, there are those certain people in the world, perhaps a small population, who not only accept change, they actually lean into it, they embrace it. And the ability to handle that change comes to define them. It becomes a catalyst for their growth. On the show today is Sarah Deacon, the president and chief operating officer of HomeTap, one of the most disruptive solutions to enter the home financing space, well, since the actual mortgage. HomeTap's founder, Jeffrey Glass said, there are so many people that are house rich and cash poor. These people might have a capital need, but their only alternative was to further borrow on or sell their actual house. Well, that reality didn't seem fair to him. So he took matters into his own hand and he set out to change it. Sarah's introduction to Jeffrey Glass and eventually overseeing operations for his digital first home equity application took a fairly unconventional journey. And it was a journey for sure. After graduating from Harvard Business School, And before she became the president of HomeTap, Sarah worked as a lead consultant for Bain, oversaw global marketing for the legendary House of Blues. She was the CMO of Zipcar and also a virgin money. She's a staunch believer in the power of technology and the impact it can have on customer experience in the future to elevate us, all of us. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it all comes down to? We're all here doing our part to elevate and impact the human experience. Hello, Sarah Deacon, and welcome to CX Champions. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. If we could kind of take us back in time and start with the House of Blues. You spent a lot of time there, 10 years, ultimately rising to become the senior vice president of marketing. And I'm sure you've experienced some tremendous, you know, growth and ups and downs, of course, along the way over those 10 years. But if you could start us out, like where did you start um, at House of Blues? And what was your first job um, when you were hired? When you have enough years of experience in your career, you get to call it a journey. So I I sort of like that description of somebody who's more tenured. But when I joined House of Blues, I went to work for a former manager of mine at Bain & Company who had been recruited into House of Blues to be the CEO. And at the time, it was a really fascinating 
business that had taken a completely different approach to what really a local live music venue could be. And really the differentiator and the value prop was around customer experience. And so I'm sure we'll get to that. But my first job at House of Blues was really in financial planning and analysis. And that really drew on a lot of the skills that I had developed over time, particularly at Bain and also, of course, during business school. So you came from Harvard. And so when they hired you, um, they obviously they looked at that. So, okay, this someone who's got a really strong background, tremendous chops, of course, Harvard business. Did you envision working at potentially the, the most famous blues bar in the world when you left Harvard? I mean, what did your Harvard uh, classmates think about uh, Sarah going to work at, uh, you know, House of Blues? Yeah, well, in truth, I had gone back to Bain for a little over a year and then was recruited out to go to House of Blues again to work for my former manager. And as you could imagine, you know, there were some folks who were like, wait, that's like a thing you can do. That sounds so fun. And, you know, as often happens in life, it isn't the planned things that end up being awesome. It's the unplanned things that end up being experiences you could never really imagine that you might have. And so when I went to House of Blues, it was very interesting time. There were three venues open. There were three under construction, certainly in hyper growth. And really because the foundational product and experience had a ton of legs. And so I was brought in with a number of other people to say, wonderful, let's sort of make sure we keep this train barreling down the tracks and bring in some more traditional management approaches, philosophies, tools, and so forth. And so I had a front row seat being in FP&A, financial planning, to how the business works. It is an amazing way to really understand what makes a business tick. And House of Blues is actually a fairly complex business in that there are multiple revenue centers and there's a lot of CapEx up front and there's a large and somewhat unknown expense associated with the talent. And so understanding how all of those things interact to make a business model that is successful is frankly a really great way to get to know a business. It's almost like getting another MBA, I would imagine, especially I think having a front row seat, no pun intended, probably was exactly what was happening. I mean, the time you spent there, look, it must have been awesome. Regardless of, you know, your music fan or not, you witnessed some really unique moments. Like any moments that just kind of stopped you in your tracks and you were like, how did I get here? I think right off the bat, and to be honest with you, for the entire 10 years, the aspect of that business, running that business, and frankly, that industry that blew me away from day one till the very end of my experience there were the talent buyers. And I used to call them like the bond traders of the music industry because you have so many variables at play when you're negotiating with an agent or manager for dates with a particular artist. You have how many days can you offer them? How many venues can you offer them? What other artists are being managed here? And how could I potentially put a package together and that you're doing, well, I'm not doing that, but one talent buyer is doing that, but then they need to work in concert with all of the other talent buyers because there are, you know, multiple schedules that you're trying to organize and optimize. And of course, then you're trying to figure out what can I afford to pay for this artist? And that's all based on how many tickets do you think you can sell? So, and it's happening fast and there are multiple lines happening, you know, at the same time. And so, which also means you need to know all of these artists and you need to understand their music and you need to understand their trajectory. And so the amount of like just 
music knowledge itself. And then in addition to that, really smart, fast business decisions that amazed me for the duration of my time there. And that's across every music genre. So like you're, you're navigating all of these departments and all the facets that go into putting on a performance or, you know, building up the brand and, and opening up a location and trying to build all those predictable models, if you will, in a fairly unpredictable business. You also had a different set of circumstances. I mean, when you go back in time and you spend a moment and dig into the original financiers of House of Blues, it's one of the most impressive lists of investors I've ever heard of, right? I mean, Dan Aykroyd, Jim Belushi, right? You had the original Blues Brothers on board, but then you also had Aerosmith and Paul Schaefer and River Phoenix even. Yeah. I mean, that is like so cool, right? So here you are, you're head of marketing, you're navigating all of the, you know, the different departments and different facets that you were just outlining. How did you navigate all these fairly big, like really influential voices that are not just influential in House of Blues, are influential on a global level? I mean, were you natural at this or did you have to learn how to manage so many cooks in the kitchen? How'd you handle that? Well, the reality is that House of Blues was founded by Isaac Tigret, who really is a very visionary human being and could see, you know, ideas and concepts that hadn't previously existed and had a very, you know, wide ranging network of impressive associates, investors and, and so forth. And he held those primary relationships um, and was able to you know, genuinely generate a lot of enthusiasm, but also generate a lot of really wonderful ideas for the concept itself. And then also the openings of those venues and the PR aspect of those. And then it, it really continued to grow. And many of those original investors remain incredibly supportive of House of Blues throughout the growth and maturation of the brand. In 2006, the House of Blues became part of Live Nation. It was time for Sarah to decide her fate. Should she stay or should she go? But as B.B. King so eloquently said, the thrill is gone. The House of Blues had grown up. Live Nation stepped in. They took control over their destiny and Sarah's destiny too. And as a result, they made her decision that much easier. She wasn't naive though. She recognized these things happened but she was prepared for the moment. We're talking about a Harvard business graduate. Over the last 10 years, Sarah matured into a well-known marketing executive and she was sought after and she knew it. Her experience at House of Blues awarded her a front row seat, not only into the do's and don'ts of building a brand, but doing it on a global stage. Yet somehow that didn't make moving on that much easier because even though it felt like a natural time to move on, the transition still took its toll. We had a very passionate and tight group of people, large group of people who had worked together to make House of Blues what it was and grow tremendously over that 10 year period. You know, And that group of people, what ultimately made it work was, I described our talent buyers they couldn't be more different people than sort of Sarah Deacon, who, you know, relatively newly out of Harvard Business School, you know, and I was like the numbers person. 
But we ended up really coming to appreciate each other's strengths. And there are many other people in the organization. And I very much enjoyed working in a team where we all brought very different and unique skills to the table, but we all really respected what the other person brought. And so when I think you grow a business and then you sell it, and so much of what made that special was that chemistry that's going to change it, it must change. And so uh, there's a little bit of why don't we leave while things are great. Um, and, and many people did move on. It was a natural inflection point. When you look back at that time in, in your life, I mean, and, and career, what thoughts really do go through your head? You know, I had many wonderful opportunities at House of Blues. I was certainly, you know, had a pre-existing relationship with the CEO, and that's a wonderful opportunity because you already can, you know, work in shorthand and, you know, each other's strengths and weaknesses. But I actually reported to, at first, the CFO, who had also been recruited, and I, my first meeting with him, he sort of shrugged his shoulders and he said, look, you know, I don't really know you, but Greg says that I should hire you. So, okay. And I was like, I'm not sure if that's an endorsement or a reluctant acceptance, but he went on to be probably my most important mentor in my career. He is somebody who obviously I got to know. He got to know me. He got to know my strengths. He got to know what my development opportunities were. And as a result, he was very encouraging of me when new opportunities came along. And I think when you can find yourself in a situation like that, and I certainly reflect back on it now, where that opportunity is present, you should take advantage of it. And one example is I was in, you know, a little bit of strategy and planning and we needed some more help or really initial help in business development. That business was pretty dependent on different types of partnerships. And business development is something I'd never done. And to be honest with you, negotiating in general was something that intimidated me a little bit. But it was probably because of that that I thought I should really take advantage of this opportunity and give it a try, even though it makes me nervous. But I only did that because I knew that, you know, sort of right behind me, Joe would be there to, you know, he wasn't going to let me fail. I wasn't going to do the work, but he wasn't going to let me fail. And so I think for anyone who finds themselves looking at an opportunity like that, uh, definitely go for it. When Sarah left the House of Blues, she didn't just leave the House of Blues, she left the entire music industry. And up to that point, she left everything she knew. 10 years is a long time, especially for a young executive like Sarah Deacon. But the reminiscing and the what-if conversations didn't last long. We're talking about a pioneer of change, and this was exactly where she needed to be. This was Sarah's moment in time opportunity. And she took a leap of faith. She joined one of the most disruptive technology companies on the planet, Zipcar. And this was a company way ahead of their time. They had a mission to change how we rent cars. They wanted to shake up the establishment and embrace customer experience in a digital first world. And with the promise of mobile technology, everything was changing, how we do business, how we communicate, and Zipcar gave Sarah the opportunity to sink her teeth into something different, something the world hasn't seen yet. But ironically, sometimes making a change in our career is much simpler. Sometimes it isn't about the disruption. It isn't about changing the world. Sometimes change is really much more human. 
It's about going back to our roots, back to where we started. Because sometimes change, ironically, it's just about going home. I did, from previous work in Boston, have a relationship with the then CEO of Zipcar. And, you know, just through sort of fairly regular communication or just, hey, how's it going? He had said, hey, you know, we are going to be creating the CMO position. Is that something you would be interested in? It happened to be at the time when, you know, we were working on the sale to Live Nation. And I had the initial reaction you did at first, which was, well, I don't like, do you think? I mean, do you think I'm a good fit for that? But then when I spoke with him and learned a little bit more about the business, there are far more similarities to what I was doing than you might think. And the first is that they're both branded consumer services. That was sort of very high level. The second is that they are both capacity utilization businesses. So possibly as we had to have people in the venue, that was sort of job number one. And at Zipcar, we really needed to have people using the cars. Those business models have a lot of similarities. The challenges have a lot of similarities. Some of the tactics end up being somewhat similar. And then finally, they're both location-specific. So what works in Boston for Zipcar or House of Blues doesn't necessarily work in LA. And so interestingly, there were a lot more points of connection than I had anticipated, which actually gave me more comfort and confidence that, oh, actually, I think I could have some stuff to bring to this role. And so that's really how it happened. When you think about all that, like the different connection points the similarities and uh, how it impacts what a chief market officer has to look at. You're looking at the challenges you have today versus the challenges in the future. And then how am I going to wrap that up into a marketing plan? But there was also something else going on. This is, we're in the middle of potentially one of the most, the greatest changes was about to happen in the market when it comes to digital and mobile applications. How do you know how to approach marketing the customer experience knowing all this new development was in the works, probably in the in the office right next door, because in the early days that you were there, the experience is totally on the web. The Zipcar mobile app doesn't come out to 2009. And you probably knew that, probably knew this was being built, but you still have to market the customer experience to today and what the possibilities are today. The point is, is basically like, how do you know how to approach marketing the customer experience for a digital tool that's inevitably going to change probably in six months, then again in 12 months, then again in 18 months, and at the same time, not sound like you're completely out to lunch because you're fairly new to the industry and the role. Yeah, so I had the good fortune of joining Zipcar when the business model itself had been figured out. Interestingly, again, we were in three markets when I joined. But the real core of that business, everybody said, oh, it's, you know, it's a great brand. And it really it was a great brand and well executed, but really it was a technology company. And the technology that had been built was really ahead of its time. And so the way that it worked, which people may not recall, is you actually had a card, a zip card card with a chip in it. And then you use that to unlock the vehicle. So you went to the website to make a reservation. And then when it was time for your reservation, there was a little, you know, reader in the inside the windshield and you tap that with your card and the doors unlocked. 
And that, as you could imagine at the time, was really right. quite amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so... Still is amazing. It still is a little bit amazing, you know? Now so you can cool. do it with your mobile app, but it was really pretty cool. And so we did... You had to actually get the card. And so that there was like a human aspect. You could come pick it up or we would send it to you and so forth. And so obviously we were not mobile first, but we were, you know, web first. And then we leveraged text messaging pretty heavily. So I would say probably one of the businesses to use text messaging as a means of communication and actually management early. So, you know, one of the things that is true about Zipcar is that if there is a reservation after you and you do not have the car returned, it's really unfortunate for everybody. However, if there is no reservation after you, you come back, you're like, well, that's too bad. I would have liked to have used the car longer. And so one of the features that we rolled out was a reservation notification. Hey, you know, there's a reservation after you, and that starts in 20 minutes. But also, and more importantly, the reservation extension option. So, hey, you've got this vehicle, but nobody does after you. Would you like to extend? And to be able to just do that over your phone, we didn't have mobile apps, but we did have text messaging. And so that was a super popular feature, as you might imagine. And that was led by our product team. And I did have the ability at Zipcar to demo there was obviously marketing, but it was also product and it was also member service. And this was, I would argue, one of the, at least for me, one of the first really more like holistic marketing growth customer experience concepts, understanding that those things are frankly inextricably linked. And like, where's one start and the other stop? And like, does it actually really matter? You know? So I don't know. Was that a marketing thing? Was that a product thing? Was that a, was that a member experience? It was all of those things, you know? Yeah. You built a Zipcar look at the time, certainly to this day. I mean, it really built a community of brand loyalists almost at an, you know, evangelical level. I'd like to dig into what Zipcar was doing so different from your perspective. What were some of the lessons that we learned, uh, that you learned when you were building this kind of mobile-first, digital-first customer experience and, and, and truly one of the pioneers that's doing it? Sure. I do agree with you. We had a large and highly engaged member base, and we used that as best we could, certainly for spreading the word, and you can imagine all of the referral opportunities and so forth. Um, but also for making decisions about what we did next. And so when we were trying to figure out, well, which types of vehicles should we add to the fleet? You know, we basically did a long market research technique, but, you know, a would you rather type of questionnaire um, for the members. And I think that we were very early on that ways of really trying to engage our members and helping us build the business. And we, as you say, we're very fortunate in that we had a highly engaged and forward-thinking member base, but anytime we could, we did. On this podcast, we talk a lot about moment in time opportunities. There's always a moment in everyone's career where an opportunity presents itself. The trick isn't necessarily to recognize when that moment in time opportunity occurs. The trick is to take action, to take action on your moment. But more importantly, to take action before the moment disappears. 
In 2008, Richard Branson came calling. And this wasn't just a moment in time opportunity. This was hitting the CX lottery. The famous CEO of Virgin was launching his peer-to-peer fintech application, Virgin Money, and he needed someone to run global marketing. And they needed someone fearless. They needed a disruptor. Well, you get where this is going. If Virgin Money exists today in the UK, South Africa, and Australia, and the vision was to bring that to the US, and as you say, this, you know, retail banking, but done very, very differently. And again, another opportunity to say, hey, instead of trying to be everything to everyone, which certainly most retail banking was at the time, and a lot of it still is, why don't we try to be something really amazing to a smaller segment of the market? And that model was powered by the fact that things were moving online. So when you don't, need to support an infrastructure of brick and mortar branches, you have a lot more flexibility to not have to serve everybody, but to figure out how to serve a segment and do that really, really well. And so that model had been proven out in the UK, but nothing really existed like it in the US. And uh, was super exciting. And again, to your point, picked up some of the, you know, forward thinking that I had learned at Zipcar and sought to apply it in a different way within banking. Uh, unfortunately, lest anybody think that there's such a thing as a perfect career, that happened at the same time that the great financial crisis happened, or I should say the great financial crisis happened shortly after I joined Virgin Money. So our global banking partner was Bank of America. And at the time, Bank of America had purchased Countrywide and had a lot of work on its hands, understandably so. And we were not quite of the same caliber as Countrywide when it came to priorities. So we had to delay our implementation of what the real long-term vision was. Um, But we did work closely with the UK team to figure out, okay, what's our plan B while we're waiting for this storm to pass? Yeah, exactly. But... Branson's such a, I mean, such a disruptor. The interesting thing about him, and it goes back to what we we're saying earlier, and this is probably why you're a natural fit for for these, is the ability to pivot really is what separates the people that are going to be really successful in life and the, and the ones that aren't. Um, in 2017, you made another pivot and uh, you joined HomeTap. And for those in our audience who are not familiar with HomeTap, um, you should be. It's a uh, a home equity sharing platform. It isn't like any other home equity product on the market. They invest in your home in exchange for a portion of the home's future value. Now, Sarah, my first reaction to HomeTap was probably similar to most people, definitely people that follow FinTech and our home buyers. It's just another traditional home equity product offering um, the homeowner the ability to be paid uh, based on current equity accumulated in your home. But I believe that's where the similarities completely stop. HomeTap, it's a real novel financial tool for homeowners. It it doesn't act like a loan where you take on debt and you have a payment to make each month. Instead, HomeTap invests alongside you and participates in the proceeds once the home is sold, essentially sharing the risk for better or for worse, appreciation, depreciation. So can you talk a little bit more about how it actually works? Did I get it right? 
Is there some spots where you can help clarify? Yeah, sure. You could get it right. We are not alone. We are an investment. So look, many, many homeowners, the majority of homeowners really are house rich, which is great, but also cash conservative, meaning they're doing fine, but there's not a lot of you know, disposable income floating around to, you know, use for non-essential needs. And what that means is that the current option set, if you are that homeowner and you've accumulated equity in your home and you have a good use for that, maybe it's paying off debt, maybe it's making repairs or renovations to your home, maybe it's investing in your small business, maybe it's paying for education. There are, you know, lots of uh, meaningful ways in which one would like to use their home equity. Your options include taking out a loan, home equity loan or cash out refi or some other way to exchange your equity for debt or selling your home. And for the majority of people, neither one of those is particularly exciting or attractive. Lots of folks, even if they could qualify for debt, they're just not interested in adding to their monthly nut or signing up for those payments. And then similarly, many people just aren't ready or don't want to sell their home. And so that left a space. And the concept of a home equity investment is that instead of that, uh, we will make an investment in your home in exchange for a small owning a small percent of that home. So if you would like to take an investment from us, we will give you that, write that check to you. You will have 10 years. You will use the money for what you believe that you know you want to use that money for. Typically, it's a few things at once. And then at the end of 10 years or before then up to the homeowner when they sell their home or settle their investment, we are obviously then entitled to a percent of the home's value at that time. That's how it works. Are you essentially giving up a portion of the equity in your home in exchange for liquidity? Is yes. That, is that correct? That is that is correct. The homeowner still so, owns the majority of equity and they still control the home, right. but yes. So beyond the product, because I'd be really interesting to know, is HomeTap a financial product or is it a technology product, right? It is definitely a you know financial option for homeowners. We do work completely online. We don't have any physical, you know, presence. However, one of our main beliefs is that we are a homeowner first company. We are intent on delivering the best possible experience that we can for homeowners because this, like every other financial decision, is important. It's impactful. Uh, it isn't something that but we think about it every day, but it isn't something that, you know, most people think about every day. And so you need to make sure that people thoroughly understand it. They have all the information that they need so that they can make the right decision for themselves. And so we think about technology really as something that allows us to actually put humans back in the equation. So if you were to work with HomeTap, you would have a single point of contact. Uh, you would have what we call an investment manager who would take that first call and is the only person you would talk to throughout the entire experience. And we want that team, obviously they're very knowledgeable, but we want them to make sure that they have the time and the resources to be able to be there for homeowners as often as homeowners need and want to speak to them. Um, we can only do that 
if we get the tech part of the fintech right. So the third option of essentially giving up this portion of your equity in your home exchange for liquidity, from a customer experience perspective, do you find that that's hard to accomplish almost like articulating this third option since it's never really been done? And as the individual that's responsible for that, how do you go about doing that? And how do you go about articulating that advantage of this third option? It's a good question because it is difficult to communicate sort of complex and new topics effectively. However, we have spent a lot of time getting homeowner feedback, but also continuously improving the way that we communicate information. So clearly, the first point of contact really for most of our homeowners is the website. And we believe in, you know, very simple, very straightforward, as transparent as possible, no buzzwords, no jargon, easily understandable phraseology, and very transparent demonstrations of how the pricing works and lots of FAQs so that people can self-serve to the extent that they want to. Um, once people get into the process and start having a specific conversation about their home and how would this work and what would it look like, we have a very easy to use but robust kind of scenario planner tool where our homeowners can change, well, what if I took this amount of investment and what if I had it for this long and what if my home was worth this amount and let me change all of those assumptions and see how it would change the outcome. And the outcome is ultimately what would, based on different appreciation, what would your home be worth? How much of that would you be entitled to? How much of that would home tech be entitled to under different scenarios? Um, because I think there's nothing better than actually interacting with the scenario rather than, you know, reading a multi-page document. So HomeTap is really probably more of a financial product that happens to be built on a beautiful technology platform or experience. And that clearly was intentional because it's hard to deny that the relationship HomeTap has with its customers is impressive. The re reviews are through the roof. Um, there's no denying that your customers are almost like a band of evangelists singing your praises. How did you make that happen so quickly? I mean, are you doing anything differently when it comes to digital CX, kind of honing on that, that sales experience or customer experience? Or is this really about the simplicity of the technology experience or the digital experience? I think it's multiple factors. And I think that is true of any good customer experience. I do think getting the digital component right is essential because it is, for some customers, their preferred path. But for all customers, it is an important component of how they work with us, how they interact, how they get information, how they ask questions. But I also think that whether it comes through in your digital experience or whether it comes through in the individuals with whom the homeowners interact, we do have a very homeowner first mentality and we have homeowner values and they really are around respect, kindness, and empathy. And if you can have that as a core value, not just for the frontline people, but for your product team and for your designers and for your engineers hmm. and for your marketing team, 
those are going to mutually reinforce. And what will come out at the end is a very authentically kind and positive experience, I think, for the homeowners. Absolutely. And you're the president and COO, so it's an exciting digital-first company. If you were to go around and ask you know, your colleagues and, and the people that you're leading, what type of leader would they, would they say you are, particularly from a, you know, as a leader in customer experience? I think that they would say that excellent customer experience is a non-negotiable, but I think they would also say that, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about coming to work every day, no matter where I'm working, is solving problems and solving puzzles. And so I think that we have a really collaborative environment around, okay, we know what we're trying to accomplish, but how can we get that done in a way that delivers the goal, but is feasible. So I would like to think that they would also say that I'm pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And the future of HomeTap, what's the next generation growth process look like for HomeTap from your perspective? We have had really remarkable growth. We certainly have found product market fit. Uh, I think the future is really how do we continue to scale in a way that doesn't compromise what we're bringing to market and the experience that we are delivering to homeowners. I think that as this type of option becomes more well-known, which it will, you know, over time as things do, I think that the demand will just continue to grow. And what we like to say is, you know, it may not be the right option for everybody, but everybody should at least understand the option. And, you know, there are a lot of homeowners in this country, so I think it's a pretty big market. When you look back at your career and it's clear you've done amazing things, what does the future look like for Sarah Deacon? One of my first mentors probably was my high school gymnastics coach. And he was an accidental gymnastics coach because he really was a football coach, but we didn't have a gymnastics coach, so he volunteered. And when we looked at him that first day, we were like, what is happening? He said, look, the most important thing to me is whatever I'm doing right now. And he was true to his word and he, it was a great year, but that stuck with me because that's how I feel about everything that I do. So for me, I don't know. The most important thing to me is what I'm doing right now. And I think you just have to sort of listen to your inner voice or intuition. And as long as you're still enjoying it and you're learning from it and you're making progress, then that's what I want to do. That's awesome. Look, you're amazing, Sarah. You're inspiring. Keep doing what you're doing. You truly are an inspiration to not only female leaders in the world, but just leaders in general in the CX space. So thank you for being a guest on CX Champions. Enjoy. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by HGS, a global leader of digital customer experiences with the talent and technologies to champion every moment. Learn more at hgs.cx.